Good afternoon and welcome to the Parity Par Podcast Part 2, Perspectives from a Payer, Provider, and Parent Advocate. Uh, this is a program put on by the Behavioral Health Task Force of the American Health Law uh, Association. And uh, we have with us today three guests, um, obviously, a payer, uh, a provider, and a parent advocate. We'll hear um, the perspective of each uh, on parity. Um, jumping right into our first guest, Deepti uh, Lo Loakar, uh, who is uh, with the Association for Behavioral Health and Wellness. Uh, she's been there since January of 2020 as the Director of Regulatory Affairs. Uh, ABHW is the National Voice for Specialty Behavioral Health and Wellness Companies. Um, it is a member, their member companies provide services to over 200 million people in both the public and private sectors uh, in the mental health arena, uh, substance use and other behavioral health um, uh, services. Prior to being at uh, ABHW, uh, DPT worked in both private and public sector uh, health policy. Um, before shifting her focus to health policy, she practiced law, focusing on civil litigation, insurance, defense, and health law. And so to kick it off, DPT, I'd like to um, turn to you and um, ask you a very general question. Where do payers stand on parity today? Yeah, no, thank you for including me in this really important discussion. It's really nice to be with all of you. Um, so I, I guess I'll just sort of start at the beginning. For the last two plus decades, ABHW has supported mental health and addiction parity. You know, we believe parity is a right. Um, everyone deserves access to equitable, affordable, medically appropriate, um, uh, you know, high quality mental health and addiction services and treatment. Um, our companies have worked very diligently over the course of the last two decades to make sure that there's consistent interpretation and enforcement of um, the Mental Health Parity Act. Um, across the U.S. and, you know, we're, um, we were an original member of the Coalition for Fairness in Mental Illness Coverage, um, or the Coalition as it was called, um, which was developed for the express purpose of achieving equitable coverage um, for mental health treatment. Um, you know, we worked hand in hand with patient, uh, patient groups such as the National Alliance for Mental Illness, as well as, the, as Mental Health America um, in this coalition, and we served as the chair of that coalition for the four years uh, before the passage of the law. Um, we helped draft that legislation and we participated very actively in the negotiation of that final bill. So I say all of this to demonstrate that our involvement was deep as is our commitment to meeting the ultimate goal of parity. Um, so, you know, but we do run into some issues. Um, there's a sentiment out there that pairs are trying to get out of parity requirements. Um, you know, this is not the case. Um, as you may know, we are the ones ultimately responsible for parity compliance. We have to provide, that comes through providing documentation and analyses that demonstrate that um, we're, providing the, we're providing access to those services. So where we run into issues is that the requirements put out by the regulators, namely the Department of Labor, Treasury, HHS, um, are oftentimes unclear. So from our standpoint, we want to achieve parity, but the lack of regulations and guidance um, and, the, and the lack of tools, um, we, lack those, we lack the tools to do that. Um, oftentimes there's a talking point, you know, that payers are complaining about the volume of documents and the amount of work needed to do a parity analysis. And um, I understand that's not going to garner much sympathy, but really it's not about doing the actual analysis or providing the 
the documents, whatever the volume might be. Um, the frustration really lies in the fact that it's generally unclear what regulators actually want from us. You know, to date, we don't know what an analysis for a non-quantitative treatment limitation. So these are limitations that are non-numerical limits on the scope or duration of a benefit. Um, this can include things like a pre-authorization requirement, formulary design, or a geographic restriction, just as examples. Um, you know, to date, we don't know what this NQTL analysis actually looks like. We don't know what would pass muster with DOL on that. Um, so that makes it difficult to put one together. And on top of all of that, the federal requirements are different from state requirements. And even within states, different regulators may um, interpret the requirements differently. So having to do the same analysis um, in, a, in many different ways is also can get burdensome. And so I'll just end with this on this. At, at times, there's the back and forth with regulators can kind of seem like an exercise on paper instead of achieving what um, Mapea set out to do, which is to ensure that mental health, um, ac ensure access to mental health services. So we understand we all have our own issues around this in, on this panel with parity, but anyone who can help us carry that message to regulators about the need for uniformity um, would be immensely helpful in moving towards a solution. Thank you, DT. That was very uh, informative. Appreciate those comments. So uh, focusing in your comments mostly on MAPEA, let's fast forward to 2021 and the Consolidated Appropriations Act. There was quite a bit in there with respect to regulations uh, in when it comes to payers and payer reporting. Do you want to fill us in on what those are all about? And will it make parity compliance more difficult for payers? Yeah, I think the short answer is that it may increase the burden on payers, but we think that it also gives us an opportunity to work with regulators to clearly define those boundaries that I was just talking about. Um, you know, we believe that the CAA provides us with a clean slate of sorts with the regulators. So under uh, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, Congress expressly established a process to examine compliance with MAPEA. Uh, which in turn triggers the Administrative Procedure Act. So under the APA, agencies have to separately state and publish in the Federal Register, and I quote, rules of procedure, descriptions of forms available, or the places where those forms can be found, and instructions as to the scope and contents of all papers, reports, or examinations. So since Congress is directing the tri-agencies to provide regulation um, on the analysis of an NQTL, we hope to capitalize on that op opportunity by making sure that our concerns are heard and they're incorporated into any regulations that may be forthcoming. Um, so while these regulations may be more burdensome um, than current requirements, we think it's better to comply with many well-defined requirements than continuously guess at what the current requirements um, mean. Um, so I think previously I touched on the need for clarification on NQTLs. Um, but I just want to be a little bit more specific on that. So what we're specifically asking from DOL, um, uh, Treasury, and HHS is for them to define a set of NQTLs. So currently, any aspect of plan design and operations can be considered an NQTL, and a regulator can ask for an analysis on any of it. Um, there's countless things that can be on this list. Um, so it's not really possible to have an analysis ready to go for each of them when they're asked for by the regulators. So being thoughtful about the NQTLs that are actually moving parity forward um, and you know, increasing access to um, mental health services should be identified and defined by the regulators. Um, we're also asking them to provide a comprehensive example of each of those NQTLs once, it's, once they're defined. 
as I said before, we don't have a template, we don't have an example, we don't have any sort of document that we can look at our analysis, look at theirs and say, okay, we think this is close enough. Um, so it's a little difficult to know exactly what, what DOL is looking for. And the last thing that we like from them is a defined process of how that back and forth with the regulator should go once an NQTL analysis is requested. It would be great if they could you know, give us a roadmap and then follow that. Right now, members are generally, they get a request for bulk documentation, which can be difficult, um, especially since the types of documents aren't clearly defined. Um, we believe that a defined list providing those examples and then defining the process for the entire back and forth would not only help us, um, but come into compliance with MAPEA, but would also help the regulators more efficiently enforce that compliance. Um, you know, and I, we're using the CAA as to just restart these discussions. ABHW and our members have been meeting with um, DOL, HHS, and Treasury for um, regularly for years to see where we can make changes. And born out of those discussions, you know, our members have improved um, access to behavioral health treatment um, services and providers. They've ensured that a behavioral health co-pays align with medical co-pays. They've eliminated arbitrary treatment limitations, adjusted prior authorization requirements, and integrated medical pharmacy and behavioral health benefits, which overall reduce medical costs. Um, so, you know, we've made progress, but we'd like just un more uniform um, regulations to make sure that, um, you know, we're doing exactly what's required. And I'll just, I'll end with this. There's also a consideration, I think, that parity is a bigger, is, is a part of a bigger solution. So parity is really important. Um, we support it very much um, and we want to comply with it, but we also need to focus on other things that affect access to care, um, such as workforce issues, uniform measures to ensure quality of care, um, access to medication assisted treatment, making sure providers have access to substance use disorder records so that they're providing the appropriate care. So there's this whole host of other issues where, um, you know, we also like to focus on um, when it comes to uh, increasing access to care for, for patients. So what I'm hearing you saying is that the, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the FAQs that were published by DOL in April didn't quite go all the way into giving enough guidance to payers. Yeah, I think it was a good start. And we're definitely using that to, you know, restart conversations with, with Department of Labor. We had sent them a letter in March, um, just uh, reiterating that we think that the CAA is asking, is directing them to give us very specific um, regulations. And the FAQs um, took some steps in that direction, but we, there's still a lot that needs to get clarified. Um, mostly that process of the back and forth and then defining that. They did define in one of the FAQs that in, for the near future, they will focus on four NQTLs, um, but that's not permanent, right? So like when that near future is over, we want to know, um, you know, what is that list of eight, 10, whatever that might look like, we just like to be prepared. Thank you so much, Deepti. So I want to turn our focus now to Karen Fessel. Um, Karen is a parent of a uh, proud parent, I should say, of two adult children, uh, one of whom is uh, on the autism spectrum. Uh, when her son was young, she tried to work with a particular health plan to get funding for treatments, only to encounter a gauntlet of uh, obstacles, appeals, battles, and whatnot with state regulators. Um, after uh, securing a victory uh, for her own family and armed with a doctorate in public health and several years working uh, for a California, the largest California HMO, Dr. Fessel founded the Nonprofit Mental Health and Autism Insurance Project. 
in order to help others in her health in their healthcare battles. Uh, she served as the executive director of the organization since its founding in 2009. Uh, Dr. Fessel um, was active in getting the California Autism Mandate uh, that we all know as Senate Bill 946 passed into law and recently worked on getting Senate Bill 855, uh, the landmark mental health legislation passed and implemented in California. So welcome, Karen. And um, Thank you I for just, having me. I'm honored to be here. Okay, so I just want to throw out there we've been we've been in the world of uh, federal MAPEA for nearly 13 years now. What has been some of the greatest challenges in realizing the promise of mental health parity from your perspective? Um, I think it's just not trickling down to um, to the regular families that need the services. And too often we see families that there's just not um, adequate um, networks of providers. And then um, often they're, they're kind of forced to use out-of-network benefits. And then they hit huge um, out-of-pocket payments when they do that. Sometimes we see that they're misled by um, health plans who tell them uh, things like, oh, well, you need to go out-of-network. Out That's why you have out-of-network benefits. And I tell them when they tell me that, well, you have out-of-network benefits when you want the choice, but if the network isn't adequate, they are obligated to provide a, an adequate network and you have to request a single case agreement. But um, families are much more likely to need to go out of network um, for mental health than for medical or surgical health. And this was um, a study published by the Millman uh, Foundation, um, I guess about a couple of years ago. And so this is, this is well known. And so that's a starter. And a lot of um, uh, providers uh, don't work with insurance because they present a lot of um, hurdles that they must jump through in order to get paid. And the rates that they offer are much less than what they can get on the open market. So that's part of um, the shortfall. It hasn't trickled down um, to, to regular families. And it's not just because of networks, it's also because um, with things like residential treatment, um, the plans often put up a lot of hurdles, making it really hard to get treatment, such as they require uh, round the clock, 24-7 uh, nursing care on, on site. Um, and it can't even be if you have like two small buildings near each other, it has to be in the exact building. Um, they have to have accreditation from one of, of several uh, accrediting bodies. Um, there has to be, um, there are several other um, hoops that, that residential treatment centers have to jump through in order to be considered appropriate. And if they lack any of those, they need to have, um, they need to be directed. The clinical director needs to be a psychiatrist. I've seen that on some of these, um, with some of these organizations. And it can make it very hard for residential treatment centers to meet the um, high hurdle. And it also drives up the costs of uh, mental health treatment unnecessarily. So those are just a couple of examples of how we haven't seen it. And we don't see those restrictions on the medical surgical side. For instance, um, skilled nursing does not have the same level of requirements and restrictions. Um, and that is often residential treatment is often compared to skilled nursing facilities when um, you get right down to what's being offered. That's how the courts have been interpreting it. So, um, 
Thank you, Karen. I examples. Yeah, it's it's a very good. You know, I see that every day in my law practice that uh, network adequacy. Um, you know, it was a thing in the in the early '90s when we were talking about managed care. Uh, when it came to uh, came to certain types of treatments on uh, the physical health side, medical care side, um, and we're really seeing that now with uh, behavioral health as we try to mainstream that. Um, you know, it's it's very rare that you see an acute care hospital that's not part of a payer network. Um, and uh, certainly we don't see that with respect to certain classes or classes of uh, uh, behavioral health providers. Right. So um, just, just to move on away from that. So what can be done from your perspective uh, to make uh, behavioral health care more accessible? And, and how do we improve the likelihood that families uh, will be able to access quality uh, mental health treatments as you referred to? I think we need to look closely at these these um, these requirements that um, function as barriers to care, and we need to um, we need to make them bring them in line with what is expected on the medical and surgical side. Um, and so, and, and also that um, if it's something that is overly, like if it's not necessary to the given situation, I've seen situations where people don't need to be um, assessed every week by a psychiatrist. And that's because of the individual circumstances of their case. And so to require them to see a psychiatrist, it drives up the care unnecessarily when it's not necessarily part of what they need. I'm talking about medication, specific medication. If they're not getting their medication adjusted, they may not need to be seen that frequently. But to have blanket requirements in there, they need to be um, they need to be based on what is going on individually for that individual client. And so, removing some of these restrictions and um, spelling them out very clearly that you know these are not uh, useful uh, requirements; they are barriers to treatment. So um, I think that that needs, so we need some better, as, as Deep T was saying, we need uh, more explicit uh, guidance on what is actually um, uh, needed um, to, for, for in, in various situations for plans to function appropriately. The other thing is, is that um, medical necessity standards, um, each plan has been allowed to develop their own standards of what they consider is medically necessary. And um, recently there was a court action, WIT versus United Healthcare. And um, what came out of that is the court uh, realized that, um, that they needed to be relying on standards that were developed by um, independent um, uh, professional organizations rather than having each health plan set their own medical necessity standards. And so that made it so that that kind of legislation, like let we and in California, we incorporated some of those changes into our law, which our mental health parity law, which was very recent. And um, some of that is being replicated. The Kennedy Forum is is taking that act on the road and um, they are bringing it out in other states. And um, but to have to do it state by state by state is, is very onerous. If we could get direction on the federal level that incorporates some of those um, medical necessity guidelines, it would be very helpful to, um, to making uh, healthcare more accessible. So Karen, I understand in your organization, one, one of the tasks that you 
or one of the services you provide is that you assist uh, families um, and individuals uh, in need of services, uh, either to get denied claims paid or services approved that have been uh, been rejected. Um, what are some of the big, biggest challenges in your work in that area that you find? Um, there's been a lot of stuff. In the early years, um, we did a lot with writing appeals and um, uh, we had a lot of challenges with, it, with um, getting ABA services covered for families with autism. And um, we encountered a lot of barriers um, from the health plans and then um, at the state level from the regulators. Um, once we got our legislation, a lot changed, a lot improved. Now a lot of the battles are about how much treatment is needed. Um, and since that time, we've um, expanded to include, to work with families with other mental health issues. Um, one of the things that we've most recently encountered is that um, we help families with um, a certain type of residential treatment called outdoor behavioral treatment, also known as wilderness therapy. And most recently, we've encountered a lot of obstacles in just getting plans to um, issue denial letters because there have been a series of lawsuits and um, they're very reluctant to issue denial letters. And so it can take six months and maybe um, like, eight or 10 phone calls to finally just get the denial letter so that you can move forward with the appeal. So we've had basically stonewalling from um, some of the plans. Um, that's been among the challenges. Um, and then, so once you get that letter, you can look at their reasons and you can write up an appeal letter addressing it. But until you do get that letter, it can be very hard to know what, your, what, you, what reasons you need to produce to, to respond to. And basically the denial letter starts the appeal process, but until you get it, you're kind of waiting for it. You're kind of in limbo. Thank you for that. So Deepti in her comments uh, spoke about the Consolidated Appropriations Act and the uh, requirements uh, under the CAA. Uh, from your perspective, what kind of responses are you seeing from plans uh, in providing these parity analysis? I know we're early on in the requirements, but right. uh, Tell us what your experience has been from your perspective. We've sent out about um, 30 so far. We've been generally doing them whenever we see a non-quantitative, non any kind of treatment limitation that is parity related, we send them in. We've sent out about 30 to date and we've gotten one response back. And it wasn't, um, it only, it made a comparison, like a one-to-one -one comparison It compared one treatment directly to another treatment instead of like the comparison is supposed to be substantially all um, medical or surgical treatments. That's my understanding of the parity law. It can't just be that, yes, here's an example of how we discriminate against, or we, we don't provide a certain service um, to someone in the medical field, but the, the way the parity act is written is that um, the treatment limitation can be no more, uh, restrictive for mental health than substantially all medical or surgical um, uh, uh, conditions. And so I think we all need more guidance, Stifty. I think that that is correct. And I, I think that um, we need better instructions from um, the feds and also the states. And I know that um, NAIC, that they talk about mental health parity a lot at their meetings, and it's a big issue. Um, 
and and we I work in many different states and uh, how you how things are handled by each state is very, very different. And you might be aware of that as well, that there's huge amount of variation. Um, so we need better uh, conformity. And, and I think really the feds have the ability to at least offer guidance that the states can um, uh, incorporate, you know, if they want to. And so that would be helpful. I um, just have to point out that we have uh, a payer and a parent uh, advocate uh, on the panel who've spoken so far, and we have agreement between the two. And that agreement is we need more guidance. <laughs> All right. I was able to extract at least one agreement between the parties. Uh, I think I've, uh, I think I could quit now and the greens don't even have to talk. <laughs> but well, the answer is we're not getting responses from the plans. So if you have any sway in at least responding, you know, even if it's a less than adequate response, it'd be helpful. I can't promise that, but okay. <laughs> but I will be thankful for the agreement. I think that was an important point. Okay. Well, thank you, Karen. Thank you for uh, your perspective from a, a parent, parent advocate, and uh, certainly appreciate the work that both of you have done. Let's move on to try to get a, a perspective from uh, a, uh, a provider in the community. And I want to uh, introduce our listeners to um, David and Alec Green. Uh, Alec is the managing director of Sanford Behavioral Health and president of Greencastle Health, a billing company. Uh, David, uh, on the other hand, is the founder and CEO of Sanford. It's a growing behavioral health uh, company, soon to have 130 beds, three outpatient programs, uh, serving uh, the SUD community, uh, treating eating disorders, and of course, co-occurring disorders uh, along the entire uh, continuum of care. So welcome to the Greens. And um, I think I'll start out by asking um, David and Alec, uh, you know, we focus so much on commercial um, when we talk about parity, uh, but we know parity applies to government programs as well. And so I just want to maybe throw a little curveball. Do you, uh, gentlemen, ever where do you see Medicare in all of this? Do you ever see Medicare paying for SUD uh, treatment anytime in the near future? Um, thank you, Greg, for, for having us on. We're, we're very appreciative. And, uh, and I do believe that is the case. Um, and, and it's something actually that the Kennedy Forum is working on. And, and our hope is, is that we can start serving uh, individuals with Medicare under the normal uh, way of billing for these services. So currently, you wouldn't actually uh, be paid by Medicare for a per diem rate, which is the normal way to, to do D detox and residential and partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient services. So with, with that, I do believe that Medicare will uh, pay for it in the future. I think it's something that the Kennedy Forum is working very hard on, um, and, and I hope that that will happen. But, but with that, I think uh, one thing that's tough for us as a provider is a lot of uh, individuals, when looking at rate structures and rates, uh, is looking at the way that we defined them. And usually it's a percentage over Medicare. And so what we really would appreciate is some rates. So then we can, uh, can also look at the way that we're uh, billing um, so then we can 
can be in line um, because what, what we've seen with certain health systems in Michigan is they can be billing uh, quite a bit over Medicare uh, compared to other health systems. And, and that can be very burdensome on, uh, on the patient. So, so yes, our hope is that will happen. I believe that with the force of the Kennedy Forum, we'll, we'll, we will be able to do it. And uh, I hope it's sooner rather than later. It's a really interesting perspective. I, you know, you t- I talked to a lot of folks about uh, SUD and the Medicare program. I've never heard that perspective that uh, will be useful for providers in the community to sort of uh, right size or normalize, if you will, not necessarily fix, but normalize within a certain range um, uh, reimbursement rates uh, based on where Medicare fee schedule might be. So, hey, let's turn back to... Um, parity on its face and what you're seeing in the uh, SUD treatment space. Uh, what I see from clients uh, in the SUD treatment space is it's, it's especially in residential, it's all about length of stay. Um, and uh, in the commercial world, uh, why do you think that payers um, differ so greatly in their, uh, their pre-authorization length of stay uh, in, in your in your segment of the industry? Yeah, we're, uh, uh, and this is David Green. Um, so we deal with 15 in-network contracts, uh, insurance companies around the country. And I think part of it is, um, you know, there's been some motivation by certain insurance contracts to really focus on their compliance with parity. And that motivation unfortunately has come through the court system rather than what was discussed earlier, which was maybe some clarification from the Department of Labor or other governmental entities, um, state law potentially. But it's, it seems like it's our habit in America these days is that our legislation might be written loosely. It may not have a lot of uh, detail to it. It's left to the regulators uh, there's not a lot of teeth in it, which is what the case was with the 2008 Parity Act. And then everyone spends a lot of money running off to court and defending those cases. So um, I, I, we see a big difference between the different uh, approaches to criteria, lengths of stay. And quite honestly, as a provider, um, while we... Uh, uh, I, you know, as a former lawyer, I, I read all the cases and I find them very intriguing. Um, but as a provider, we really have to um, do our best um, to work with all 15 insurance companies. We have to interpret all of their criteria. We have to deal with all of their bureaucracies and their forms, etc., which we do. We have quite a big uh, department that Alec operates. Um, which raises the cost, obviously, to us, um, and, and so we see a we see a wide range of rates. We see a wide range of authorizations, um, but we we really feel like there's a bigger picture here, right? Not only do we want to treat people in a quality fashion, we want them to get well. Um, not only is it the right thing to do but the financial windfall to the insurance companies to get somebody in recovery versus active addiction in the case of substance use disorder is absolutely amazing. The physical health 
ailments, uh, issues, chronic issues, uh, I'm not saying they all go away, but they diminish dramatically. And the savings to the insurance industry, uh, to, to, to medicine generally, is uh, if you can take a, a, a more than a, you know, the next minute view of things and look at the long haul, that's really uh, where we think that there should be a different approach to mental health generally. I think also, um, we just got our renewal for our company for insurance and went up five, 10%, I can't even remember. Well, that insurance company is competing with other insurance companies for our business. And it's all about what your renewal rate is, right? And I'm not really sure mental health has been totally baked in to the cost of insurance. Um, once again, I think if it is properly baked in and it's financed and it's supported, the physical health aspect is going to improve dramatically. Employers, actually, if you look at the data, are going to have more reliable employees. Uh, they take uh, fewer personal days, um, et cetera. There's a lot of data out on that. Um, and we've written a white paper on that. Um, so I, I think I'm rambling now, Greg, but um, that's a long, <laughs> long way of trying to answer your question. So let me ask you this, David, as a former uh, or still a lawyer, but former practicing lawyer, I'm sure you um, um, take great uh, interest in, in many of the, the what I would call landmark cases in the area. Uh, and uh, Karen mentioned Witt versus United Health um, Care. Do you believe that things like the WIT case uh, will drive more uniform criteria uh, for SUD providers uh, such that things like length of stay will normalize over time? Yes, I believe it will. I think, um, um, you know, we're in, we're in Michigan. We're close to eastern part of the United States. I guess we're mid Midwest. Um, you know, a lot, of them, a lot of those cases, the federal cases come out, out, out from California. So it's kind of nice when they get cited across the country. We all know that WIT is being cited across the country. It's going to become law, regardless of what the regulators in Washington, D.C. do uh, until Congress might change the legislation. So I, I do believe it will have an impact. Um, I'm quite surprised when I'm dealing with various insurance companies that um, some of the people I'm dealing with may not have a little more education on the ramifications uh, of WIT and uh, you know the legal jeopardy that can uh, flow from WIT. Um, but I think it's all going to catch up. I do think it will um, create a standard. And fundamentally, and this was referred to a few times, is um, I actually, when I read WIT, I basically took away from it that that particular judge. Um, I think anointed ASAM as the voice for the standard of addiction treatment in America. ASAM was formed in the 80s and the goal of ASAM was to come up with a national standard, a national criteria for substance use disorder. Now there's, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we're dealing with 15 insurance companies, right? They all have their little twists and turns. Um, some are, you know, way out there and some of them, you know, putting their own signature on, on ASAM do pretty much follow ASAM. So let's, uh, let's turn the dialogue uh, 
for the Greens in the payer perspective to uh, a little bit more philosophical. David, I know you and I and Alec have had conversations about whether we're in the right payment model. Uh, you know, if we look at the history of behavioral health uh, on the public side, fee-for-service was not the gold standard. Uh, many uh, capitated contracts, subcapitated contracts, and uh, where, where providers were held to quality. Uh, providers went out of business and they couldn't deliver care for a certain price. And, you know, along comes the Affordable Care Act, which makes behavioral health uh, an essential health benefit. And providers are thrown into this fee-for-service world. Um, just wondering what kind of tension that creates from where you sit. Uh, is it the right payment model? Uh, and can we start uh, uh, looking at uh, different types of payment models that uh, might have a better set of goals for cost-effective delivery of care? I have a quick answer, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Alec. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah greg you know i think the 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 big piece that you're hitting on is that the fee-for-service model uh makes uh payers and providers butt heads so how can we come together collaboratively to get somebody healthy and i think the answer is value-based and it is capitation so I, I think it could even be a mixture of the two, uh, but I, I think we need to get away from the fee-for-service model. I think it is going to help with some of the NQTLs that we're seeing right now that are based on length of stay, um, but we see other NQTLs, and I do want to just speak on that for one second to kind of talk about some of the things that Deep T and uh, Karen said. And, and one thing is, is I totally agree that we need more standard standardized NQTLs. But when I see certain NQTLs that are stating that 15 people need to be in treatment at a time for this individual to get paid, or, uh, or another one being you can only have two 28-day stays in a, in a year period of time, those are inexcusable. And I think we really need to come together as providers and payers and say, let's work together. Let's be collaborators. How can we make this cost effective for both sides? Uh, you know, there is in, in a lot of cases too, there should be a psychiatrist involved, but do they need to be there 24-7, seven days a week? Uh, so I think there's different pieces that we need to look at when looking at payment and when looking at the NQTLs, because I would, I would really love more description of what those look like. Uh, but some of them that we see are, are uh, very, very burdensome on the patient that needs that care. Um, and, and if you are not a provider that has that knowledge base and knows that you might uh, appeal that on the back end based on unreasonable NQTLs, you know, you're not going to bring that patient in and they might, you know, who knows, they might die. So it's, it's a tough thing that we don't, uh, don't want to mess with. And I think that it's something we need to see some pretty immediate change on. Thank you, Alec, for uh, that perspective. Uh, DT, did you have a, a comment? Yeah, no, I guess I'll give you another point of agreement. You know, we, uh, our members also are very pro um, integrated care. I mean, that is something that we um, advocate for. It's something that we want to see. I think this past year, especially with COVID, we've seen that mental, mental health and, um, and physical health are indeed intertwined. So, you know, we want to make sure that they're being treated 
um, appropriately. Um, and so we are, um, you know, the, I think CMS has, uh, there's the collaborative care model that they've put out a few years ago. And, you know, we're, um, we think that there should be, they should look for ways, CMMI should look for ways to incorporate that elsewhere. And so, um, you know, we do advocate for that. So I think there, this, you know, we've, we found a couple of places where we might have some overlap where we can actually work together. And I think that's great. <laughs> Thanks. That is excellent. Excellent to hear a second area of agreement. And I'll tell you, I want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening to uh, our parody podcast, part two, perspectives from a payer, uh, provider, and parent advocate. And while we're talking about that pea soup, I will just uh, throw in there that uh, perhaps uh, I should be tagged the peacekeeper <laughs> because I was able to keep uh, what could have been a fisticuffs uh, and find a couple of areas of agreement between everyone on on uh, our podcast today. So thank you all for your time. And uh, for those listeners, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, if you haven't, if you felt like you stepped into the middle of a moving uh, target or a motion picture, please make sure you tune into part one of the parody podcast where Anna White uh, was able to talk to a few regulators in the area and uh, set the stage really for this part two. So thank you all on behalf of the Behavioral Health Task Force of the uh, AHLA. We appreciate you tuning in today.